is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special Fathers series, which tells the stories of fathers with special needs children. And it's brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers with special needs children with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey of ups and downs. And you can learn more about it at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. And now here's our own Alex Cortez with this edition. Life was going great for Randy Lewis. He rose to become a vice president at Walgreens. And then he had a son with autism and a new life that would be different. Only 58% of young adults with autism are employed, and fewer get married. I learned that disabilities plays no favorites. Rich, poor, black, white, whatever color, brown, plays no favorites. And I was thinking about all those people, you know, wealthy people, not so wealthy people, people who struggle. What are they going to do? And here I am in charge of this division. i got 10,000 people, a billion dollar budget. If I can't do something about this, who will? And if, you know, we're a successful company like Walgreens, and if Walgreens couldn't do something about it, which company would? And before Randy Lewis was a father, he was a son. My father was not expressive, and I always longed that he would. I longed that he would hug me, or but that that was not his style. Not that he didn't have the feelings. He wasn't comfortable enough doing it, because men didn't do that. So I used that in the memory of it as a child to always let my kids know I love them. I mean, they're so tired of it. Austin has autism. I've told him, a thousand times I've loved him. And he never says, when you tell your child, I love you, you're really asking them a question to respond back, I love you too. And Austin's never done that. He responds, why do you always say that? <laughs> so, and, and then I say, well, I, do I always say that? He, he, well, no. And, I, and so we try to put it another way. Austin, you know how much I love you. And... That's a tough question for him, but he always has interesting answers. His most interesting one is all day long. And Kay and I thought, well, that's a that's a good enough answer. We'll go with that. If that's the one we have, that's the one we'll deal with. Maybe Austin's right, and Randy might have overcorrected a little bit with this love thing. But what would you do if it took your father 22 whole years to tell you that he loved you? One of the most touching moments for me and my dad, the night before I was going to leave for Peru to go to the Peace Corps, he came into my room that night. I'd never had a talk, you know, you see on TV, those father-son talks, you know, that was not the relationship I had with that. I don't remember a single one. And he came into my room and he said, I'm proud of what you're doing. There's always time for the rat race. And once you get in it, it's hard to get out and I'm glad you're doing this. And I'm proud to have you as my son. And I love you. And that's 
I think that's maybe the only time I remember the first time. And after that, there were lots of times when my father told me he loved me. Love that he'd need. Randy and his wife Kay felt like something might be different about Austin. He didn't cry at all when he came out of the womb, and he put himself to sleep as a toddler, but they didn't make much of it. And finally, at three years old, after family members kept whispering that Austin was different, they had him tested. At least so that, as Randy put it, they can get their family off their back. About a week later, they called us in for the results. And so... We came in, very optimistic, sat down, and first thing Kay said was, I know you're going to tell me I'm giving him too much sugar, and he did not smile. And I thought, well, either he doesn't have a very good personality, or it's not going to be good. So he started reading through the results, and it was bad, bad, bad. We couldn't test him on this because he didn't have the level of skill even to be administered to test. Yum, bum, bum. On and on. And uh, he called it pervasive developmental delay. PDD. Which is a term they use now. But not as much. But that was sort of a precursor to autism. A way of saying, okay, we don't know what it is. But I, you know, a lot of times that's a code for, for us parents when we hear that. It's autism and I remember saying well will he grow out of it will he get better and he stopped he looked up from his papers and he looked at us and he said he might get worse and that's when the bottom fell out so Kay and I took the walk back to the car Kay was crying I was stoic. We got in the car, and she told me later she looked at the sky and said, why can the sun be shining on a day like this? How did God let this happen? And I, trying to be the optimist, and I said, who's better prepared to deal with this than us? You know, we have a loving marriage. We have the means, we'll get through this. Who knows what will come up. Now, I said that as much to me as I did to her at the time. And that's when the journey started. And when we come back, the Lewis family's journey, the Special Fathers Network bringing us our Special Fathers series, Why Would the Sun Be Shining on a Day Like This? His bride said to him, How could God let this happen? The answer to this and more. Randy Lewis's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with our special father's feature and the story of Randy Lewis, his wife, and his son, Austin, and their battle with autism. What they got with Austin's autism was unique. They're all unique. There's a saying in autism, once you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person with autism. And now they're even calling it the spectrum because it's so wide. I mean, there's a large percent of people who never speak, who are not verbal. Austin was not verbal. He was taking that track. And then there's also other things that go with it. You know, you can have IQ issues with it. People with autism have huge IQs, but there are people with autism that don't. And the problem is, you don't know because they're so young and they don't have the skills yet to expose those abilities or not. With a young child when they're diagnosed, you're, you're taking a track. Your first reaction is, let's fix this. And mostly guys think that. You know, that, that's our toolbox. Now, if there's a problem, let's fix it. And that was kind of what I wanted to do. And then everybody that has read any article about anything will give you help. They will say, there's a music therapy, or there's a uh, this therapy here, or this therapy there. We had everybody trying to give us help, trying to give us solutions, and those could be overwhelming. And we had to make a decision how much we were willing to do and devote and, and focus on Austin he had two years later, Austin had a sister, our third child came along. So we had three children when, when this was going on. When Austin was diagnosed, we had a, a newborn. So we had to make a decision about the rest of the children. He's going to take more energy than any other child we have. But how much are we willing to siphon off all the other energy for our girls, for Austin? Because we only have so much energy, how do we do that? How do we strike a balance? Because we see, we were afraid because it's easy for your child with a disability to become the complete focus of the family and the other siblings grow up with that. So we had to strike a balance. So we had, we made a decision. Yes, we're going to pursue with us when possible, but we're not going to move to Canada and we're not going to try everything. Uh, along the way, we want to try to bring Austin, who we called our Martian. You know, we're Earthlings, but we had a Martian land on Earth. How little Martian live effectively on Earth? Because the world's not going to become Martians for him. Well, this Martian may not have changed the whole world yet, but he has changed his father. One thing that Austin, his gifts to me, were, were many, but, uh, and I think all parents of a child with disability will say this, is patience. You, we all fuss at our children. We, we, lose, we lose patience with them, and we'll have an outburst. That happens. Now, with Austin, what happens with him, you know, he shrinks back and he stops behavior. Long after the emotion of it has gone out of me, the anger about the, of the moment, he will come back 
a day later, two days later, a month later, and recall that moment and relive the emotions of that moment. And it shames me. And so I learned to control myself, my bad impulses. And it also made me realize it had the same effect on my on my daughters when I would do it to them, but they have the skills not to show it or the coping skills that Austin didn't. I mean, they felt the same way. It was, it was bad for them just as it was for Austin. That was a huge gift that Austin gave to me. And being able to see people who are way different as completely worthy. Austin has taught me to see a different person and to be able to understand the love that these kids have and everybody has. I mean, typically able or not, and that's that's been a huge gift. He's given me a humanity that was not, maybe it was there, but he sure has been able to stroke it and help build it in me, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm very grateful for him. Austin so affected Randy positively that he couldn't keep this impact away from his work life as the head of logistics at Walgreens. This was a brave decision. Randy decided to be vulnerable with his work colleagues at their distribution centers. So I started talking to our general managers, saying we ought to do something about this. Told them the story of Austin, hopefully inspired them, and kind of just let them on their own to go do something. Work with school systems, maybe hire some kids here and there. But that, that didn't work out that well. It wasn't scalable. We had 20 centers across the country. Some people did something. Most people didn't. And then uh, we built some centers, four big centers in about the year 2000. And some people went out and got these groups working in them that contract out. And that was okay, but then we said, let's hire some people out of this group, and some people did, and what we found, that experience worked as our employees. So it came time to build a brand-new center, and we were going to make it more automated. We were going to make it the most efficient center in the whole world of its kind, travel the world for the technology. It's going to be the most expensive. And it was going to be in Anderson, South Carolina, a small region of 75,000 folks. And I thought, why can't we just tweak this new automation and the new IT? Why don't we just tweak it to enable a group of people to perform as well as anybody just by tweaking the equipment? And oh, by the way, let's go with the big number. We wanted a number that would inspire us. So let's hire one out of three people to be people with a disability. Now, how I came up with the number was when we had people working in our centers with disabilities, typically because we didn't want to pay for job coaches, we'd put them with two, among two people, volunteered workers to have that person as their co-worker, and they'd work alongside, and they would mentor that person, and they were successful. Our past said that would work here and there, two people for every person with a disability, that one out of three. And then when I asked an autism expert, how many typically able co-workers for each person, let's say, with autism, we thought that's a difficult disability, would we need? And he said, probably two. So we had two data points, so that became the numbers. We're going to have 600 employees. It's something you know, nobody had ever done, a mission-critical site with that big a number, 200 people out of 600 people. And we launched that. 
and we had that number because it had to inspire us. Nobody, we had to tell the team, nobody's ever done this, and the standard is to give it your best. Now, if there's a process that gets in the way or a policy we have that you can't get around, come to me. But otherwise, we're going to make mistakes, figure it out, give it your best, because if it doesn't work, well, we're going to tell the world nobody else can do it because we gave it our best. And that we want to sleep well at night. So that number of 30% became 40%. Next building we opened, it was 50%. And then we brought all the GMs. And they saw what was there and the culture it created and the performance and all that kind of thing. And they all wanted to do it. So they set a goal for themselves. A thousand people with disabilities within four years. 10% of the workforce, which they achieved. And then having achieved that, and we all, by the way, and one of the things that, that helped inspire us was appealing to our better angels, says when we do this, and we used to never let anybody in our centers. We would, you know, we thought we were the best or either the worst we didn't want anybody else to know about. But we didn't share things with other companies. They were our competitors. But on this, we said, when we do this, if we're successful, we're going to give it away. We're going to open our doors to the world, even our competitors. And I think that appeals to people that we're working for something bigger than us. And I think that challenged everybody and inspired everybody to do it. So they set a goal for 1,000, achieved it, and then they set a goal for, for 2,000, 20%, which they're working on now. And we did give away, and lots of other companies came. Uh, Best Buy, uh, P&G came, UPS, some companies overseas, Marks & Spencer in the UK. And it continues to grow. We're working for something bigger than us. You're listening to Randy Lewis's story, his son Austin's story, and now we're learning about a major company in this country, Walgreens Response. And it's remarkable, and it's beautiful. And by the way, what the dad said about Austin, I learned to control my bad impulses. And that was a huge gift to me and to my family. Special Fathers series brought to us by the Special Fathers Network. Randy Lewis's story and his family's here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Story, Randy Lewis and his son Austin's story. And by the way, if you want to pick up Randy's book on this subject, No Greatness Without Goodness, you can go to Amazon.com and pick it up. But now the rest of the story. We go back and return to Alex Cortez. It even led some universities to come down and study what the heck was going on here. And could these Walgreens distribution centers measure up to the quote-unquote normal ones? The study shows productivity is the same, safety is better, retention is better, all those kind of things. So there, there was no really downside except to do something different. And then Randy shared 
what this all has really meant. A powerful personal story of one of the very first differently abled employees at their South Carolina distribution center. You know, when we made this announcement that we were going to hire 200 people in this one building, people with disabilities, I, you know, I was shocked that the, the bell, it rang across the country. You know, 200 people. I mean, Wall Street Journal wrote an article on it, and NBC News came, and ABC, 200 people. Is a, is a situation so desperate that this is a big deal? And I remember we had one woman who, here we are in South Carolina, getting ready to open up South Carolina. The news gets all the way out to California, this woman, Desiree, working out there as a temp. She has a disability, a rare muscle condition that requires that she use a walker. So one day, Desiree's over there in San Diego working as a temp at this uh, admin position, and she comes in with her walker, and her boss says, what's the deal with the walker? And Desiree says, well, I don't use it all the time, but sometimes I need it. And he says, great, come back when you don't. Desiree packed up her bags, moved her family across the country a year before we opened just for the chance to apply. And now she is a supervisor in that building. And Randy couldn't help himself but to continue. A young man named Chuck, he's on the autism spectrum. We hired him and put him between two ladies. And we hired him in our Pennsylvania center before we opened up our center in uh, South Carolina. He was one of the guys that kind of gave us the idea, yeah, this two-for-one two would work. Because Chuck did a great job, but, you know, once or twice a day, a purple plastic tote would pass through his area. And Chuck would stop and start dancing and yell out in glee for everybody's attention. So that's how we knew his favorite color was purple. And then the question was, is this something we can accommodate? Is this behavior appropriate for a professional work environment? And we kind of came to the conclusion, when it comes down to it, which would we prefer, complaining or dancing? So we said, let's go with the dancing. And Randy continued storytelling some more. In our Connecticut Center, which was the second center, and that's almost 50% of the people with disabilities, there's a young man named Chris who is, has TBI, traumatic brain injury. I didn't know his disability. But if you meet him, you would think he's the most charming guy in the world. I mean, his co-workers love him. He loves them. As a matter of fact, I think he calls himself the mayor of the <laughs> work area. And every time I go to the center, I always go talk to Chris. As a matter of fact, he's one of the few pictures that I have on my wall, Chris and I standing together. Because he, he did make the place better and he's fantastic. So last time I was there, he said, my mom would really like to talk to you. So I said, okay. And that's always you wonder what that call is going to be like. So I call her up and she's very gracious. She said, oh, I recognize your voice from the you know, TED Talk. And I said, well, it's great to talk to you. And she says, you know, Chris loves his job. And he gets there an hour and a half before his shift starts so he can meet with his friends and, and talk to them and they sit in the cafeteria and talk and she said that's so important to him because when Chris was in high school he sat alone and now he has friends and a reason to come to work early we don't think about those things that's something we just don't it's just below our radar and when you hear that 
it makes it all worthwhile. How Absolutely. many of those other Chris's are sitting out those in those school cafeterias today? Knowing stories like that makes it easy to keep carrying the ball forward, even when you get knocked down occasionally. And that's why I've stayed in this, you know, four years after retirement, continuing to advocate, share the story, and help more businesses do this, which they are, gratefully, which they are. And these awesome folks like Chris, Chuck, and Desiree are truly normal employees, at least as far as Walgreens is concerned. From the get-go, I mean, we had to remember we're a business, not a charity. So if we were going to make this work, we said we're going to do same, same performance standard, same pay, same jobs, side by side. And I think that's what made it successful. If we were going to be able to sustain it, that was a standard we had to do. And some people will ask, what kinds of disabilities could you not hire? And we've determined, I mean, we've been at this 10 years now. We haven't found a single type of disability that we'd automatically exclude. Because everything is a spectrum. Everything is a spectrum. For example, mental illness. You know, that's a scary one. (laughs) Everybody's afraid of mental illness. And uh, we had to think, well, we know we already have people with compulsive uh, OCD, uh, compulsive disorder, something like that, or depression, or paranoia, and that's just a senior executive. <laughs> so, hey, we already have experience, what, what we go? <laughs> and we did. It worked out across the board. Now, not every person with autism will be successful, not every person with mental illness to be successful but guess what among our typically able population not everybody will be successful too and we we had to kind of look at it that way but oh by the way a lot more people were successful than most people would give them the credit for and they changed us too for the better and here's randy lewis's closing advice for parents with differently abled children here's the biggest thing In those early years, all the stories we play in our head are all the things that can go wrong. You know, we see see the doom stories more than we see the hope story. Here's what I learned. Austin turned out so differently than I had projected. Most of those bad stories don't come true. Some of them will, but know that your worst story probably won't. And our children continue to develop. Austin is not the same man at 28 as he was at 27 even, and certainly not at 21. That the story will be different than the one that goes on in your head. I was shocked to learn Austin learned to drive. That was the same thing as uh, the child learning summa cum laude from Harvard. That changed his life that much. He drives, and I found out he gets on the train and goes to Chicago by himself. And then he rents a bicycle by himself. I've never seen that. And oh, by the way, Austin is the only person in the house with a steady paycheck now. He works at a Meyer distribution center and drives an hour away. He's been working there for three years, full-time jobs. Oh, and oh, by the way, good begets good because Meyer, you know, the big chain here in the Midwest, they took our program. And the uh, CEO called me up and said, we're going to open up the center in Wisconsin. I don't know if it's near you, but if it is, we'd like one of our first employees to be Austin. Who would have thought that? 
you know, what goes around comes around. We didn't have any centers yeah. near us, so I didn't do this for Austin. I thought maybe in the worst case, if I had to move maybe to another city where one of these were, I could beg for a job. But it turned out to be much better than that. And what an amazing story about bringing differently abled Americans into the workplace. Randy's story, his son Austin's story, Chris, Chuck, Desiree, Walgreens, and so many other companies. The Special Fathers series brought to us by the Special Fathers Network. And you can learn more and sign up to be a part of this fantastic network at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we bumped across an inspirational story on the website of Opportunity Lives that we just had to share with you. It was titled, How One Charter School Student is Transforming Youth Relationships with Police. And that charter school student is with us now, Rashad Red. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Rashad, this is really an inspiring story from... Well, someone young, and we don't have it tell enough great stories about young people in our country who are doing great things. You were born to a mm-hmm. remarkable single mom, it sounds like. And before we even get into anything, talk about her before we even have another sentence or move another minute. Yes, well, she is the greatest mom in my perspective. She's supported me throughout this whole thing. Once I told her about, you know, my idea of, some way connecting police and minority youth. She totally supported me. She's been a single parent ever since I can remember, and she's totally supported me throughout my life. All my endeavors, she's been behind me, and it didn't stop at this. Well, you were born into a tough neighborhood and found your way to a charter school where you've really done quite well, the Mentorship Academy in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, And you were witnessing the all-too-common problem of bad relations between at-risk young men, particularly in communities like yours, and the police. Talk about just what you were seeing on the streets every day. Describe it for us. I saw so much animosity between my friends, people that I knew, and the police officers. It was such a disconnect between the two. I knew some people who wouldn't even consider calling the police when something went wrong because they felt like that was the problem. And that startled me because what I see in the news and the media on the daily, it's, it made me feel like I didn't see enough solutions. I didn't see enough people trying to make this better. And I'm sure there are, but I really didn't see it. And I knew I couldn't let my friends go on having these feelings of just pure anger because of what they've been seeing their friends and their family members go through and seeing people die, go to jail. And it's just perpetuating the same narrative that all officers are bad or all black children, black kids are bad. And I feel like if they could connect somehow, maybe we could fix this problem. 
Well, Rashad, you had something that so many people need more of, and that's empathy. But you had it both for the police and for the at-risk youth like yourself. But it's one thing, Rashad, to feel empathy. It's another thing to do something about it. Talk about what that next step was. You had this feeling. You were having these observations. What did you actually go and do? Well, um, a professor at LSU sent me an application to do a TED Talk. And the application said, what would you like to change in your community? And me and my teacher, Ms. Leatherman, talked about it. She said, what would you like to see change? What bothers you? Because, you know, TED Talks give you a platform to talk about issues like this. So I said, I want to create something that puts police and youth together in a way that helps expose the humanity in both of them and possibly have that transfer to real life to where when they see each other in these intense situations and they consider each other's perspective. And um, we decided to call it I Am More, where the police officers and youth get together at schools and the students come with pre-prepared questions and they ask the officers things that have always puzzled them, things that have always confused them. Um, They ask about high-profile cases. They talk about their daily lives. They hit all the, you know, news points, big media stories about brutality and things like that. But what really is inspiring during these meetings is when you see the conversation shift from really tension, stirring moments to where they're just talking about regular everyday life, who's their favorite football team, um, what jerseys do they wear, regular things about life, and that's the point to somehow show them that they're no different. Yeah, we are in the end all the same, and we know this, and yet somehow we as human beings are always trying to divide ourselves. How does it actually work? How do the students in your school and the police get to know each other? What do you do? How do you how do you bridge that gap? What are you actually doing? Talk about that. Well, we first we first meet with the students, and I can tell you that is um, very nerve wracking because I know how they feel about police. We meet with them, and we honestly tell them we want you guys to meet with some police officers. We share your name anonymously, and a lot of students decide to share their names, but there are a few who choose during the meetings when we get the police officers together with the students to not share their names. So when introducing themselves, they don't share their names because of the fear they have towards police. But at the very beginning, we meet with the students and we tell them our mission, which is to connect police officers and youth like them, and that the community needs it, and that this potentially can save lives of not only the them, but the police officers. So I asked them to come up with all the questions that they've always wanted to know. And in that stage, surprisingly, they're very eager. They see the news stories. They know everything that's going on. They come up with tons of questions. And then after a lot of talking and preparation about how it will take place, how we will all sit in a circle and, um, not to be intimidated and to speak your mind respectively. We then have a meeting and the kids come in the room, the police officers, and we begin asking those questions. And the officers explain as best they can why things are the way they are. And most importantly, students will ask a question like, why 
why do police officers not respond as quickly in my neighborhood as opposed to different ones? And the officers give honest answers to those type of things. They tell them, you know, sometimes priority levels are different in certain priority levels are different uh, towards a crime, whether it's um, sometimes it's more severe when weapons are involved. They give them sensible explanations for why the things they are, but they also admit that things could be totally better, and they get to see what these kids go through, especially in rough neighborhoods. And I hope that they leave knowing that these kids aren't all bad, And and definitely the students, they see these police officers in a totally different way. They say it usually at the end, I totally thought of you guys as monsters. Um, if I relied solely on the media, I would think of you as monsters. And some, in some cases, officers do bad things, but not all officers are bad. Yeah, it's so good to, to, to realize that difference. And tell me, how did, how did your friends and your fellow students react when you first told them about this idea of, of sitting down with people who are not like them. I mean, sitting down with police of all things, what was their initial response? They thought, they thought I was out of my mind. Um, they thought um, that I was trying to do something that was a little too um, brave, a little too courageous um, or a little too lofty uh, of a goal because um, a lot of them totally didn't like the police. Like, it's so much animosity. And that's why I feel like there's still a lot of more work to do. But my mother, she was totally behind me. She always kept me inside in our neighborhood because of the, how rough it was and stuff like that. She taught me to have uh, respect for police. Um, but she also taught me to be aware of my surroundings and aware of my rights and aware of... Um, you know, all the situations I might get myself into and that I do have rights and that I do owe police officers respect. Um, uh, she she was the main reason why this happened. So uh, with friends, it was rough, but with my family, they stood behind me. Well, that's all you need is the, the family behind you to give you the courage. You know, I wanted to ask you one quick question. We have about a minute and 45 seconds left. Tell us about your school, the Mentorship Academy, and what it's meant to your life. You used to be in a, let's just say, a a different school that didn't rise to your needs. But tell us about what this Mentorship Academy has meant to you and your life and the opportunities before you, Rashad. Man, being a mentorship allowed me to have this initiative happen. I don't know if I went to another school, maybe public or or another, if I would have able to... Would be allowed to have police officers come here and do this type of thing. This school is so innovative in its teaching methods and its allowance of a child to be creative. They allow me to be creative. When I brought this idea to my principal, um, Mr. Webb, he was totally behind me. He was inspired that I would want to do something like this. And I just thank everybody at Mentorship Academy for allowing me to be be creative and tackle things that are outside of school, outside of the academic scope. Well, really well, Rashad, we really appreciate you. We love your creativity. You're inspiring us with this story. Inspiring Opportunity lives to write about it. 
And folks, uh, you know, what can you say? And this is why we so we struggle so hard for school choice and profoundly so. And Rashad, thanks for all you're doing. And we look forward to talking to you more. Keep in touch with us because we want to follow your your story. I know there's a lot more coming from you, my friend. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you don't get much better than that. A young man in a tough neighborhood trying to let his friends know what cops' lives are like and trying to let the cops' lives know what their lives are like. Walking in another man's or boy's shoes. Really important for us all to do. Have empathy. Share. And sometimes just shut up and listen. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this is Lee Habib, and we love to tell stories about the American dream, and we call it our American Dreamers segment, and we've done a bunch in the past. Our favorite, Mario Andretti. We had actually done a short piece on Andretti, and ultimately, we got in touch with Mario Andretti himself, and when we pre-interviewed him, we thought, my goodness, what a life story, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of Our American Dreamers segments. And today, you're about to hear the story of an airline company that you know. They make planes. But what you don't know is the man behind the name of this company. Let's take a listen. In the summer of 1889, eight-year-old Wilhelm Edward Boeing has no way of knowing that one day he will be running the biggest aviation company in the world. His father, who was also named Wilhelm, emigrated from Germany to what was seen as the El Dorado for timber merchants, Detroit, Michigan. He was 22 and penniless, yet saved every cent and became a millionaire through the timber and mining industries. More specifically, from the iron called taconite, Here's William Edward Boeing, Jr. And his father was a, a very fast learner. I mean, to come to this country and live here uh, just 20-some years and be successful as he was, I find that most remarkable. The son adores his father and sees him as a role model. Suddenly, catastrophe enters young Wilhelm's world. Unfortunately, he died of influenza at the age of 41 or so. And, I mean, having his father die at such an early age was certainly most difficult for the family. For Wilhelm, life becomes even harder when his mother remarries. The boy withdraws into his own world and openly refuses to accept his stepfather. Stepfathers and stepsons don't always um, mesh perfectly right off the bat, uh, and he may have 
felt that this was good for young William to get a little more discipline in his life and so on. And so he was packed off to school. Young Wilhelm Boeing, who just turned 13, is about to embark on a journey into more of the unknown. Since his father's death five years ago, the boy has become more and more of a loner. His new family sees him as a troublemaker. His mother sees no other option but to send him halfway around the world to a Swiss boarding school near Lake Geneva. Wilhelm was left to cope on his own. I imagine for a young boy from Detroit, going to Switzerland at that time, it was really an undertaking. But apparently uh, he did quite well. Tens of thousands of people have experienced that and survived it. I think in Boeing's case, you have to wonder if it didn't make him a very uh, sort of self-contained uh, and stronger person. That I mean, he was in Switzerland after all, uh, having to, to cope with uh, foreign culture and a foreign language, or several foreign languages being Switzerland. Many years later, the hard years at boarding school are over and Wilhelm Boeing finally sees the Statue of Liberty appear on the horizon. After all the lonely and authoritarian years in Switzerland, one thing is clear for Wilhelm. He's an American. He signs his name as William Boeing. William enrolls at the elite university, Yale. But one year before graduation, he drops out and takes a steamship west to Washington State. Yes? Mr. Boeing, your whiskey. Oh, thank you. Stuart, at what time do we arrive in Grays Harbor? Now we arrive tomorrow morning. Is there anything else? No, thank you. That's all. Have a good evening. For Boeing, it's another venture into the unknown. Yet he follows in the footsteps of his father. He wants to go into the timber business. It really was the Wild West, only instead of cowboys and cattle, you had timber and loggers. So there were lots of saloons, hotels, all the kind of places that lumberjacks would want to go to spend their hard-earned money. It would have been quite a shock, um, very, very different than what he was used to. In many ways, it must have been very similar to um, Wilhelm Boeing's uh, you know, experiences back uh, in Michigan when he first came over as an immigrant. I mean, for a kid who had been raised in, in luxury, sent to boarding schools, uh, uh, had gone to Yale, it must have been a shock. At about the same time, on the east coast of America, thousands of miles away from William Boeing, and at first unnoticed by the world, a technical quantum leap a revolution that would change the world is taking place. And when we come back, we'll hear what that revolution was. And we'll hear much more about this American Dreamer's story. And it's the life of William Boeing. And again, to hear all of our American Dreamer segments, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we return to our American Dreamer segment and the life of William Boeing. And when we left off, well, there were some changes afoot on the East Coast. A couple of bicycle mechanics from a little tiny place called Akron, Ohio, were in Kitty Hawk, experimenting, messing around, doing what American entrepreneurs have always done. Well, just challenge each other to do something, well, that no one else had ever done before. Let's pick up the story of William Boeing. Brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright have been studying flying devices for years. On December 17, 1903, the two bicycle mechanics finally succeed in performing the first motorized flight in the history of mankind. This feat would soon change William Boeing's life too. In fact, in the deep woods of Washington, Boeing manages to achieve things that nobody thought him capable of. Within a short period of time, he started the Greenwood Timber Company, so he had his own blogging business that he had started. He also started Boeing and McCrimmon, which was a land holding company, so he would purchase land so that he could log it and possibly for the mineral rights. But once he was done logging it, this holding company then sold the land. Um, So he was very successful in the few years that he stayed in the Grays Harbor area. In all of his pictures, he's always well-dressed. Part of that is just the time, but part of it was just who he was. Um, You see photographs of him out in the woods, and yes, he's wearing rough clothes, heavy wool slacks, but they were always nicely made. You can tell when you look at the pictures that it's high quality material. He just always presented himself as a well-dressed, well-heeled businessman. Boeing is a wealthy bachelor who has achieved great success. And in 1909, at the World's Fair in Seattle, he sees a manned airplane fly for the first time. This sparks a fascination with aircraft And in 1910, his life takes a new turn when he travels south to the Los Angeles International Air Meet to see the first aviation show in the United States. Since the Wright brothers' motorized flight in 1903, the developments in aviation have been immense. Thousands of spectators come to see the flying machines. William Boeing is fascinated and wants to try it himself. He approaches most of the aviators asking for a ride and is turned down by all but one. Here again is William Boeing Jr. There was a French pilot by the name of Poulin who was going to give him a ride. However, unfortunately, the Wright brothers sued Poulin for infringement of patents on the controls. And he was one very mad Frenchman that he, he didn't like that. It just didn't work out. Pollen ended up leaving the Los Angeles area before Boeing could get a ride in an airplane, but he obviously was very attracted to this. Many consider the ride that Poulin failed to give William Boeing to be the greatest missed opportunity of his life. Tell me about your trip to Los Angeles. Oh, it was quite fascinating. Actually, I attended an aviation event a couple of weeks ago. It was amazing. Fixated by the thought of flying, Boeing returns to Seattle. His conversations keep revolving around aviation. 
Then four years after his visit to Los Angeles, Boeing is introduced to U.S. Navy Lieutenant Conrad Vestervelt. William Boeing? Conrad Vestervelt. Nice, nice to meet you. Nice sir. to meet you. Heard a lot of good things about you. Oh, all good, I hope. Well, I hope so, too. <laughs> you uh, been up in a plane before? Well, I uh, studied aerodynamics at MIT, so oh. I kind of designed those things. Really? I'd mm. like to talk to you more about that. You know, uh, aviation is the future. Yes, it is. Yeah. Westervelt was a well-educated East Coast young man who was in the U.S. Navy. He comes from a very similar background from Boeing. Boeing finds a friend in Westervelt who sees the airplane as something more than the widely held belief that it was nothing more than an expensive toy. To affirm that the aeroplane is going to revolutionize the future is to be guilty of the wildest exaggeration, trumpeted the Scientific American magazine that year. But for Boeing and Westervelt, there's only one topic in life, flying. So you have these two young men, they're single, they're fairly well off, both interested in aviation, both interested in similar things. And so it was, the two of them finally got their airplane ride in Seattle. On the morning of July 4th, 1914, Boeing and Westervelt celebrate the 4th of July by purchasing tickets for a ride on a push-prop Curtis seaplane on Lake Washington. Boeing goes first. Sitting on the lower wing of the plane, Boeing's feet dangle over the front of the wing, while his hands grip the edge of the wing. And there is no seatbelt. He spent uh, the afternoon taking turns with his friend, uh, and they became more and more interested. This is 1914. The short of it is that they looked at it and they said, we can build a better airplane. And that was the beginning of Pacific Aero Products that eventually became the Boeing Company. A small shipyard situated on Lake Union in Seattle, an ideal spot for building water planes, becomes the nucleus of the Boeing Airplane Company. On June 15, 1916, William Boeing has his new 26-foot-long seaplane, Bluebill, pushed out onto the lake. His test pilot is unaccountably late. Growing impatient, Boeing climbs into the cockpit, takes the controls, and taxis out into Lake Union, determined to perform the first flight. As the late pilot rushes up to the hangar, he's just in time to see Boeing turn the plane into the wind, gun the engine, and lift off. Now, Father hadn't had a lot of experience. He'd had a little bit in this Martin seaplane, but that's what was about all he'd had. And you know, it's a, quite a performance to get in an airplane, brand new, that uh, actually he and Westerfeld had constructed and take off. Boeing's maiden flight is a success, flying over 900 feet. The following morning, Boeing and his plane are the talk of the nation. For the last two years since 1914, World War I has been raging in Europe. 
For the first time in history, aircraft are deployed in battle. Yet America fails to see the importance of aviation in war. Boeing sees an opportunity. Boeing was not only a, a believer in aviation and an enthusiast, but he was also, uh, in his way, I mean, he was a patriot, and he thought uh, America was asleep at the switch, that the war in Europe was already showing that aviation had a role, and it was a role that was increasing almost week by week as aircraft improved and as their uses were diversified. When the war began in 1914, the American Army had 55 aircraft on its rolls, 55. I mean, Belgium had a more thriving military aircraft presence in 1914 than the United States did. Boeing wants to wake the military up with a spectacular event. He flew over the city and dropped fake bombs, uh, cardboard uh, missiles that, with the message in them, you know, sort of in a sense saying, wake up, we need to be, uh, our aviation needs to be prepared. You know, we're vulnerable. And the story goes that one of the places he dropped them was at a football game between the University of Washington and uh, the University of California. And I've checked, and, and there was a game here in November when this flight took place. So I believe that part of it is, in fact, true also. And when we come back, we're going to continue with our American Dreamers segment for the hour, the life of William Boeing. It's a story you should know, and that's what we do here on our American Stories. You know the products. You know the innovations. You know the inventions. You just don't know the people behind them. And here in this show, here on this segment, and regularly with our American Dreamers segment, we like to tell you the story behind the story of the man, the innovation, the invention. When we come back, more with the life of William Bowen. our American stories and we continue with the life of William Boeing and what I love about doing these segments and what our team loves is digging in and finding quotes and excerpts and so often is the case as it was with Henry Ford my goodness you have the Ford Museum sitting there in Michigan with all kinds of experts historians artifacts and not many people give him a call and what a life story that was we didn't do that as an American dreamer segment we did that Henry Ford piece as of this day in history so, by the way, make sure you go to our This Day in Histories, too. The Henry Ford story is a stemwinder, as is the Wright brothers, and you heard them mentioned in the last segment. What we're going to dig into now was the mind of Bill Boeing, and you're about to hear from one of the historians at Boeing about some original documents and what Boeing saw for the future, not only of his company, but what he saw for the future of America 
And as is so often the case with these innovators, they are so far ahead of their time that most people, well, at the time, probably thought he was totally crazy. Let's dig in to the rest of the story. Today, Boeing's headquarters in Chicago, the workplace of company historian Michael Lombardi, is home of the company's most important document, which is kept in a safe, multiply insured and protected. This is the document that Bill Boeing put together when he decided to start the company. It's a wonderful document when you're, when you're trying to examine the genius and the vision of Bill Boeing. And keeping in mind at the time, uh, the airplane in the United States was just a curiosity. Nobody really saw a use for it. But Bill Boeing, in these articles of incorporation, put down what his business should be. And you see some amazing things, such as having airports and the ideas of... Uh, which was completely unheard of at the time, of people flying on airplanes and using the airplane for travel. It really shows the genius and the vision that Bill Boeing had. Because of the war in Europe, the Navy is looking to order 50 training planes. Boeing is very keen on getting this contract. All his hopes lie in his new seaplane, the Model C. Boeing calls in his best test pilot for a private meeting. I've got two Model Cs ready to go down to Pensacola, Florida, and I want you to fly them. I'm your man, sir. I can do it. I know you are. But I will tell you, this is um, going to be quite a challenge. I've, I've got a lot of airtime in these models. I know what I'm doing. I know you do. That's why you got the job. But this will be completely different than what you've been doing in Seattle. Uh, there's different waves, there's different wind, weather conditions, and you'll be flying against the best in the country. And uh, this is for a government contract. 50 planes. 50. 50 planes. If you can earn this contract, then the future of the company is very, very bright. I cannot express to you how important this is. Uh, this is the future of the company, and you're the man to make that change. You up for the challenge? I can do it. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm your man. All right. I don't want you to worry about a thing. So here's to uh, future business and ultimately future successes. Okay. In 1917, the United States enters into World War I. Pilots and aircraft are now needed on the other side of the Atlantic. At Boeing's aircraft hangar in Seattle, there's an uneasy calm. They're waiting for the outcome of the test flights in front of the Navy Commission in Florida. Gentlemen, I've received news from Pensacola. They say the Model C is excellent. We have won the commission. We're in business. Now we have to build 50 planes in a short time. I'm counting on each and every one of you. Now let's get to work. Boeing received a contract for 50 of these Navy trainers. So it was our first government contract and the first, uh, the first production order that Boeing received. So this really was the, the beginning of the company. The son of a German immigrant is awarded the sought-after contract for planes to be used in the war against Germany. Boeing's people work in three shifts around the clock to complete this order. November 1918, World War I is over and America celebrates its victorious soldiers. 
Like all Americans, William Boeing is relieved that the killings on the battlefields in Europe have stopped. But he's anxious too. Surely there won't be any more defense contracts in times of peace. Boeing suffered at the end of the First World War, as all aircraft manufacturers did. It was, a, it was an industry that, that had really not existed in any significant sense before the war. Suddenly it was called into life by the needs of the war. Boeing immediately had to lay off uh, people. Boeing, who went into the aviation business with so much passion, is suddenly faced with enormous financial difficulties. This was in part because a surplus of cheap used military aircraft flooded the market, and many aircraft manufacturers, including Boeing, were unable to sell new aircraft. What can I do for you, sir? Well, sir, I've been working for you going on a year now, and yesterday I lost my job. I've got a wife and two little girls, and I don't know what I'll do without work. Well, the company's hit rock bottom. I mean, the government doesn't want our planes anymore. I mean, what do you want me to do? I pay your salaries and bills with my private fortune. If I didn't do that, we'd be out of business a long time ago. Yes, sir. Thank you anyway. No, wait. In which department do you work? Carpentry, sir. All right, I'll talk to your foreman. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Knowing that the business would continue sometime in the future, he wanted to hold on to his people. And the thing to, th thing to remember at this time, these were very skilled craftsmen, woodworkers, seamstresses, and the engineers that he'd brought in. These people were hard to find, and it would be very difficult to find them again. Boeing had two choices. They could collapse. And simply, he could say, well, it was fun, and now I'm going to do something else. Or he could keep it going with money out of his own pocket. Boeing puts $390,000 of his private money into his ailing company. In order to survive and keep from closing, Boeing is forced to diversify and start selling, among other things, furniture, countertops, phonograph cases, and flat-bottom boats called sea sleds. The sea sled can hit a speed of over 40 knots because they're equipped with, you guessed it, airplane engines. These boats speed across the Seattle waters with deafening noise. They built, you know, like a dozen of them. And they sold three until Prohibition came in. And suddenly, whether this is in fact why or not, we don't know, but suddenly they all sold, and they sold for cash. Almost overnight, the rest of the sea sleds disappeared. So the inference has always been that somebody saw their value as uh, bootlegging vessels to run up Puget Sound into Canada, where prohibition was not in effect. So Boeing contributed to the uh, bootlegging careers of many people in the area. But they were, they were fine vessels. Boeing keeps his company from going under by accepting even the tiniest of contracts in hopes of better times for his aviation business. One worker that came up to him and wanted to know if they are going to make it or not. And I think Father said, we get by this summer, we'll never look back. You know, they got by this summer and never have to look back. And when we come back, more on the life of William Boeing 
And as always, you can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, go to our American Dreamers category, pull down the segments, take a listen, and I promise you, if you listen to the Mario Andretti story, you'll love it. The Bernie Marino story, fantastic. And the Harley Davidson story, almost as good as this Boeing story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this is the final segment of our American Dreamer segment on William Boeing. And we learned about the innovation and the innovator and entrepreneur inside this man, but there was also a heck of a salesman. And in the end, well, you're about to hear about the biggest sale he possibly made for his nascent company. Let's take a listen. Uh, good morning, Eddie. Where, Mr. Boeing. Everything ready? Model C is ready to take off, refilled, and checked. Where do we fly to? We'll fly to Vancouver. <laughs> Where? Seriously. Ooh, what do we do there? We pick up mail. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of storms in that area, and this time of year, the weather's not going to be that cooperative. We'll fly right up here, right straight up the coast, be in Vancouver before you know it. Yes, sir. Let's do it. In 1919, Boeing has a new idea. Planes could speed up the postal service and make it more efficient. He plans a direct flight across the Canadian border to Vancouver. When he returns to Seattle, this is a moment of triumph for William Boeing. In 1927, chances for a lucrative business opportunity arise for Boeing. One of the major leaps in the business for Bill Boeing and really put him on the national stage was the idea that they would try to win one of the uh, mail contracts, air mail contracts that the United States Post Office had put out for bid. Boeing's men get started. They want to create the greatest air mail plane ever built. The Model 40, as they called it, became the envy of its competitors. The airplane did beat the competition, and it was critical to the success of, of Mr. Boeing winning this contract, uh, the, actually the biggest contract, which was flying mail from San Francisco to Chicago. Boeing's move displayed incredible foresight. He won the bid for the contract by deciding to use an air-cooled engine rather than a traditional water-cooled engine in his Model 40 mail planes. The Model 40, in addition to carrying mail, also had an enclosed cabin that could carry two passengers. So for this venture, William founded a new business, an airline company called Boeing Air Transport, later to be called United Airlines. In the first year of operation, it delivered an estimated 1,300 tons of mail, 
and carried 6,000 passengers. This was a moment of triumph and revolution. It was a new concept of aviation, of, of blending passengers and, and airmail and everything together. This was the first time in this country that passengers, freight, and mail were carried on a route. This route was 2,000 miles long from San Francisco to Chicago. The Boeing airplane company had some success building military planes, but nothing on the commercial side. And this airplane really established the Boeing company as a commercial airplane company as well. Boeing started to show a profit from his airmail endeavor. The rule was that the mail came first. And so if they had more mail, passengers got bumped. But they, carrying those passengers actually is what made it profitable even the first year. And that is very unusual when you start something as new as this to have it successful the first year. As his company begins experiencing new success, so does William personally, as he meets and marries Bertha Paschel. From now on, she hardly ever leaves his side. Boeing gives the love of his life a gift, the Taconite, a yacht named after the iron ore his father once found that had brought great wealth to the family. But turbulence hits Boeing's flight of success with the Wall Street crash of 1929. It will become the most devastating stock market crash in the history of the United States. The mood swings against Boeing and the thriving airmail companies. When the Depression happened, and actually in the, some of the darkest days of the Depression, the aviation industry was doing quite well, despite the Depression. So this, of course, caught the attention of politicians in Washington. Politicians look for a scapegoat. In February 1934, William Boeing is summoned to a government antitrust investigating committee. Mr. Boeing, Mr. Boeing, is it true that in 1916 you founded the Boeing Airplane Company in Seattle, Washington? Yes, sir, that is correct. And in 1927... Boeing is accused of creating a monopoly and getting his government contracts only through secret agreements. Building monopoly for your company. The government cancels all contracts. In the future, they want to nationalize all the routes. Boeing desperately tries to refute these charges. Sir, I did not create a monopoly, nor did I cheat anyone. I simply had the foresight to bid low and take a loss the first couple of years with a long view in mind. The only thing I am guilty of is running a successful company. That's all. It was very unfair hearings. Uh, they weren't interested in the facts. They're more interested in the conclusion that they've arrived at before the meeting started. And so this basically was more a political vendetta. Mr. Boeing, a man of the deepest integrity, is so hurt by the accusations that he regrets ever getting into aviation. All the charges were dropped, but the whole idea of, of being treated this way, that uh, remembering that Bill Boeing was uh, the epitome of a gentleman, that his word was, was everything. He was honest, a man of integrity, open and fair business. These are the things that he believed in. And to have that questioned uh, 
was an affront to him. It, it uh, affected him deeply, and he sold his interest and moved on to private life. William Boeing, who founded the Boeing Airplane Company 18 years prior to the investigation and then turned it into a booming business, resigns as chairman and sells his stock. He spends most of his time with his wife on their yacht, the Taconite. He serves as an advisor to the Boeing Airplane Company during World War II and is on hand again in 1954 for the rollout of the Boeing 707. airplane company's first jet and their first commercially successful jet airliner. Then on September 1956, just two days before William Boeing's 75th birthday, time stands still on board the Taconite. Here's the current owner of the Taconite, Gordon Levitt. I'm reviewing here the pilot house log of the yacht and uh, I'm looking at uh, September the 28th, 1956. With sincere regret, I record the death of the owner, Mr. William E. Boeing, at 1308 from acute thrombosis. Signed, Perth McIntyre, Master. No formal funeral was held and his family scattered his ashes into the sea off the coast of British Columbia, where he spent much of his time sailing. On December 15, 1966, William Boeing was inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio. For outstanding contributions to aviation by his successful organization of a network of airline routes and the production of vitally important military and commercial aircraft. William E. Boeing established a company that remains iconic in American industry. Today, the Boeing Company is the world's largest aerospace company and leading manufacturer of commercial jetliners and defense, space, and security systems. Boeing products include military aircraft, satellites, weapons, electronic and defense systems, launch systems, and advanced information and communication systems. With $96 billion in sales, Boeing has customers in more than 150 countries and operations in 49 states that employ over 156,000 Americans. Despite his company's stature, Boeing carefully managed his public persona and did not reveal many details about his life. The life of the company Boeing founded, however, provides some insight into the man. At its root, it was a simple passion for flight that pushed him to innovate. Boeing did not necessarily have a grander vision of the future of powered flight than did his contemporaries. What he did have was the ability to recognize opportunities when they presented themselves and the skill to leverage his considerable personal resources in pursuit of those opportunities. Boeing also knew how to choose people who shared his goals and who could best complement his own talents. These characteristics, coupled with a strong commitment to excellent engineering and design, laid the foundation for a company that perhaps more than any other became a lasting symbol of the strength of American manufacturing in the 20th 
and now 21st century. And there you have it, the life of William Boeing. Great job by Greg and the whole team here at Our American Stories. And if you want to hear more, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Hit the American Dreamers segment. Pull down this link. If you have friends who love aviation, send it around. If you don't, send it around anyway. Again, this is Our American Stories.